this morning, if you'd open up to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12, 1 Kings chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I pray, Father, that as we open up your word, that you would be glorified and honored. I pray that you would work through me, and Lord, I pray that you would Reveal things to my own life, my own heart, in ways of application. I pray that we would all be submissive to your word. I pray that it would transform us and change us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The last time we were together, we covered a, a lot of ground. I, you know, I'm going to try to hopefully frame it a little clearer to you this morning. The title of the message this morning is A Kingdom in Turmoil, Part 2. If you're taking notes and you want to get a sense of the narrative, this opening here is designed to try to get you a sense of the moving along of the narrative in this section. And so if you're lost a little bit, I hope this helps you try to just get the guidepost and the sign markers what we're going to do is we're going to look at all of these scenes really quickly and go over them. The first scene here that we're going to be looking at is, and I'm going to go through a review of these, but if you want to jot down some notes here, scene one in chapter 11, verses 26 through 39, a man named Jeroboam surfaces, and we see the prophecy concerning his kingdom. What we're going to see then, the, the flow of the narrative moves into scene two. We see Solomon at the very end of his life. We see his pursuit of Jeroboam. We see that Solomon sees Jeroboam as a threat, it appears. And we see that Solomon's death here is recorded in the word of God. We then move into this depiction of who is the son of Solomon. That man would be Rehoboam. Rehoboam is a very harsh individual, and these verses describe that. And I'm going to review this in a second, but I just want to give you a broad overview real quick. But then we get into the problems that are happening. The, what God revealed to Solomon is now tragically unfolding because we see a kingdom in turmoil, and we see that there is going to be a great rift between that once unified kingdom of Israel we see that ten tribes in the north are going to distinguish themselves and be distinct from the two within the south. The next scene, we see prideful idolatry. Prideful idolatry. We see a man that is so proud and arrogant that it drives his, his longings. It, it, it feeds his idolatry, his pride. But then we see... A story that's going to be really remarkable. If you've never looked at this passage, it's going to be interesting to you. We see this man called the man of God. And we see the man of God's obedience in the first half of the chapter. And we see his disobedience in the second half of the chapter. And then we are left with a prophecy that is sobering. And really just pushes this thing to the brink and we see Ahijah, the man who had prophesied of the very kingdom that Jeroboam would receive. We see his prophecy this time 
not of this kingdom just forming, we see his prophecy of his kingdom falling. And we see a prophecy of judgment on Jeroboam. So if you've got your notebook or your brain in tune with this, I want to go through this a little bit in the first few minutes as we get started this morning. What we're looking at is we are looking at a storyline here of what takes place when a nation turns their back on God. And we're looking at a story of Israel's rebellion. We're looking at a story of pride and arrogance and the deep consequences of sin. And we are instructed in the Word of God to learn from these stories, to learn from the history of what's come before us, You see, in that beginning scene, Jeroboam surfaces, and he was a noble kind of industrious, smart young guy, worked in the line of, worked in the people of Solomon. And what took place was Ahijah, one day as he's going out from Jerusalem, Ahijah takes a brand new garment, rips it into 12 pieces, hands Jeroboam 10 pieces and tells him the amazing prophecy that he will reign and that he's going to be over the north with those ten tribes. We see this come on the scene, and it's a phenomenal prophecy that Ahijah gives. But then what we learn in this is we learn that God's word is sure. What God says is going to take place happens. It's something that sounds pretty basic, but it would be one of those passages or one of those reminders that If God's word is sure and we see it unfold in a way that is always acting for promise fulfillment, promise fulfillment, promise fulfillment, we need to learn that in our own heart, don't we? Because there's a lot of promises that God has given that have yet to be fulfilled. But we can learn from 1 Kings that we can take these promises to the bank, that they're sure, that we can live on them. We can trust them. And in fact, what we're going to see unfold today is we're going to see the blessing of what takes place on the contrary to what we see happen in these men. I mean, we're going to be reminded of that. When people forsake the word of God, there's great consequences. But even in that warning, we are reminded of the hidden underlying theme of the blessing of the people of God that take God at his word. We're reminded of that. God's word is sure. And, and, and last time I mentioned some passages. We're going to see in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 16, chapter 17, that when God speaks, it takes place. It's a reminder all the way through here. We're also reminded in this scene, we're reminded of the promise to David that even in the midst of all that's happening, God is not finished with David's line. God will be faithful by bringing Messiah. When we look at this next part and we see Solomon's pursuit of Jeroboam and his death, we're reminded of things now happening exactly the way God said would take place with Solomon. Now Jeroboam is one of three enemies that are coming against Solomon before he dies. It's a consequence of the sinfulness of his choices. But then we saw last time this harsh king, Rehoboam. And remember in a paraphrase, He comes into the kingdom, and immediately Jeroboam and the people of Israel, they come to him. And what do they say? They say, look, look, let's share something with you. If you will lighten the load of your father, 
you will have the people. And Rehoboam's like, you know what? Give me three days, and I'll get back with you. And it seems promising, but what does he do? This guy, he acts so arrogantly. He, he doesn't listen to the wise counselors that his father had available. What does he do? He goes after his younger, ungodly friends. And those guys encourage him in a way that is devastating. And now he says this in chapter 12. In chapter 12, down in around verse 12, down through verse 15, look at verse 14. He says, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And then we learn, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. One of the mysteries of God's sovereignty working alongside human responsibility to fulfill his will that he's ordained. Uniquely taking place in front of us. We see this moving on here in the storyline. And we continue and we see the kingdom in turmoil. And when we get into chapter 12, verses 16 through verse 24, what happens is that the people make this statement. If you can understand this, you'll sort of get the sense of what's happening. They say, what portion do we have in David? What do they mean by that? Jerusalem was marked by David. It was marked by the line of David, Judah. Benjamin was alongside Judah. And what are they saying at this point? They're saying, what do we have here? But what do they do? They now are lining up, and we're seeing this kingdom beginning to split because they're going to go to the north. And what do we see Rehoboam does? He acts out of the just horrible wisdom that he's already exercised. He sends Adoniram or Adoram, depending on the translation. He sends him, who is the leader of the workforce. They kill him. He flees from the scene. And what's taking place now is, is that the north makes Jeroboam king in chapter 12, verse 20. So now you've got two kings in Israel. You talk about a mess. You've got Jeroboam in the north. You've got Rehoboam in the south. And what takes place next is fascinating. Rehoboam says, all right, I'm not going to put up with this. All right, I'm going to take 180,000 men from the two tribes that I am king over. I'm going to take the best men of Judah and the best men of Benjamin, and we are going to have civil war. And what takes place next is phenomenal because we see an example of the mercy and the kindness of God. God intervenes. It's almost a hidden note in this story. And what happens is God brings his word through his man, Shemaiah. In verse 22 of chapter 12, the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all the house of Judah and Benjamin and the rest of the people, thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. And shockingly, look at the result. It says, so they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again according to the word of the Lord. And what takes place as a result? 
it saves many men, women, and children from death. These 180,000 men that were ready to go and fight, as a result of listening to God's word, there's blessing that comes out of this. And what kindness of God. At this point, there's no natural understanding that we can come up with why God at this point would intervene. Because men had disobeyed him. They had gone against him. But God is consistently patient. Just as Mike read this morning out of 2 Peter chapter 3, we see the goodness and the kindness and the mercy and the patience of God. And so we see at the end of verse 24, it calms a little bit. But now, this morning, we are going to get into this next portion. We move into chapter 12, verse 25 to verse 33. And what we're going to do this morning is from chapter 12, verse 25, we're going to go all the way to chapter 14, verse 20. About two chapters, really. And what we're going to cover is this. Four responses in light of what we learn in the narrative. Four responses. What are we learning? Because Romans chapter 15 speaks about that these things are written for our instruction. What are we to learn? What are the four lessons that really hit my heart? Number one, we see a call to humility and a warning against pride. A call to humility and a warning against pride. When we move into verses 25 to verse 33, we look at a very arrogant and very selfish leader. And we read in verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, I want us to begin to look at this. I mentioned it at the very end last time. But as we go into this, here is a man that is worried over his outcome as he reflects on what is going to take place. If you go back to chapter 11, what did God reveal through Ahijah? You go back to chapter 11, and you read in verse 38, what did God reveal to Jeroboam? Verse 38, if you will listen to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. It's interesting because even though God shared with him through the prophet that if he would be faithful to the ways of God, that his kingdom would be in safe security, what happens? Jeroboam exercises pride rather than humility. 
when we look at this first point and we see a call to humility and a warning against pride, I want us to think about four subcategories of pride in Jeroboam's life. What are the four marks of pride? Well, the first one is you see his worry over trust in God. His worry over trust in God. I I mentioned this to you last time, but typically we don't put worry in the category of pride. We typically are very empathetic and we're typically very excusing over the sin of worry within our lives. We tend to justify it. We tend to say it's normal. We tend to say we have natural concerns. But what we learn here is is a wonderful lesson about what is at the heart of worry and anxiety. What is at the root? What we learn here is, is that, believe it or not, there's pride that's lurking in the background. I've told you before, but, you know, when you're running uh, chords at the sound booth, uh, there's chords going different places, and you take a chord at the top, and you've got to run that chord a long way, and then you've got to get up underneath and see where it's going and see where it goes into the wall and see what, what it connects to. And often, when you look at the symptoms of your life, you've got to do a little bit more homework to really see where the root cause is. It's sometimes not apparent just by looking at the symptom. You look at what happens and what comes out of your life, in your behaviors, and in your responses, and in your reactions. But often, if you trace that cord, if you trace that behavior far enough back, and you get back to the root, you see something that is different than you may have first thought of. That's exactly what happens with worry. In this situation, this is a complete act of arrogance of Jeroboam against God's good promise that he had revealed. Rather than trust the promise of God, he took on worry and he took on fear in a way that exemplified the heart of pride and the heart of arrogance. He took it on. You could say, well, he's just concerned. Well, God had already given him a promise. God had already revealed it. I I challenge us this morning to hear the comforting words of the Scripture it's interesting because 1 Peter chapter 5, it speaks about worry, and it speaks about a passage that we have all probably said before or heard before. It says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. That's a comforting verse, isn't it? It's, um, but it's a verse that often we forget what's around it. It says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, in 1 Peter 5, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. What's interesting here is, is the alternative of casting all your anxieties on him is carrying your own anxieties. 
And rather than manifesting humility, like casting your anxieties on him, carrying your own anxieties reveals the opposite. It reveals pride. Jeroboam shows arrogance in his worry over trust. Be encouraged today. It's painful sometimes to see where that root cord traces back to, but be encouraged because the word of God is sure. And what God says in his word about his faithfulness, his sovereignty, and his good intentions for you, Christian, you can trust him with the details of your life. And rather than take the burden of the worries and anxieties of our life, we can trust in the good promises of God that he will meet our needs and that he will be faithful to us in fulfilling his promises and we never have to fear that he will ever let us down. That's comforting. That's the first area that we see this pride revealed. We're called to humility rather than the pride of Jeroboam. But another area of pride that you see under this first point as we look at a call to humility is we see that this man seeks after the counsel of the ungodly rather than the clear counsel of God. Do you realize that sometimes when people say, when God has spoken clearly, we don't need to pray about it. When God has revealed to us which way to go, sometimes we may think that the spiritual reaction is to pray. It could actually be a sign of humility and arrogance, and I'll tell you why. When God has spoken clearly, we don't need to question it. We don't need to seek for what God has revealed when he's already revealed it. We don't have to pray whether or not God desires us to live in morality and holiness. We don't have to pray today, God, what do you desire me to do, to live immorally or morally? Why? Because God's word is clear. God's word has been clear in this storyline of what Jeroboam was to do. So in this instance, through the heart of Jeroboam, his act of seeking counsel to ungodly through ungodly people is actually an act of great arrogance. It says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. We're never exhorted to go after the counsel of ungodly men. He seeks after the counsel of ungodly men. In verse 28, so the king took counsel. And he took bad counsel. He didn't need to take counsel. God had revealed to him, and even in chapter 11, Ahijah set the stage of his exhortation to obedience by calling him to remember the sins of Solomon. The sins of Solomon were the sins of idolatry, the sins of going after foreign gods, the sins of compromise. And now, here he is. He needs not to seek counsel. He needs to follow God. His arrogance is not only displayed in his worry over trust, but he's seeking the counsel of ungodly men. Another way this arrogance is seen is that he seeks after his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. Now, this is interesting because I think it hits home the question that we all have to ask ourselves and pray about is, am I seeking after my own kingdom or am I seeking after the kingdom of God? That's, that's a tough question. It's an important question. Because what does he do in verse 27 of chapter 12? If this people go up 
to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. What should his line of thinking be? If this people go to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord, praise be to God. Because that's how God has commanded his people to worship him. But what is he doing here? He reveals that his motive is not the kingdom of God. His motive is his own kingdom. He doesn't care primarily about the glory of God. He's worried about Jeroboam's life. He's worried about his own. When we look at this, it reveals in our heart whether we're humble or proud. What is your desire? I was thinking the other day about how Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. And, and, and isn't it interesting how it, it, it shapes the way prayer ought to look in our life? Remember, Jesus says, pray this way, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's the idea of may your name be revered. May your name be above all. This, this flies in the face of Jeroboam's heartbeat here. And then Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jeroboam didn't see himself as a servant of God who existed to bring about the glory of God's name. Jeroboam, much like the man that we saw early on in the first Kings storyline, a man named Adonijah. And what did Adonijah do? He sought to exalt himself. And Jeroboam here is showing that his kingdom's more important than God's kingdom. And Jesus said later on in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The danger is this. The danger is that we adopt a form of Christianity that becomes an attachment to our own pursuits of our own kingdom. And we see that under the fourth mark of this pride, under this first point. We see a call to humility, a call to humility, a warning against a warning against pride, and we see these marks and characteristics of Jeroboam in chapter 12 that show this. And you know the last one? He remakes God into his own image. You got to be careful, don't you? Maybe the God you're following is not the God of the Bible. Maybe it's a God in your own image. Maybe your pursuits of spirituality are just that, your pursuits of your own spirituality. A lot of people want to follow God, but they want to follow God on their own terms. They want to make God into their own image, and that's exactly what he does. He's very pragmatic. Pragmatic always bases the, the, the method based on the results. If it works, it must be okay. And he's thinking, okay, how can I keep these people from going to Jerusalem? I will start a system in the north where I create a worship center in Dan, which is all the way up at the very top of Israel. And I will create a worship center in the south of the northern kingdom, which is called Bethel. And Bethel was right at the edge. Right before you got into Judah and went towards the temple in Jerusalem, you would come to Bethel as you were coming from the north to the south. And here's what he does. He remakes God into his own image. And rather than him fulfilling the Moses figure 
we thought he might look like back in early chapter 11. You remember, Moses rescues the people from the hand of oppressive forced labor. And it appears for a moment that Jeroboam is following along in this way of looking back at Moses. He's going to rescue the people from the hard labor, and he's going to be a figure like Moses. But he takes these people into the wilderness in a whole different way. And what does he do? Rather than remind you of Moses, all of a sudden, he reminds you of another man in the Exodus account. He reminds you of a man at the foot of Mount Sinai named Aaron. Not like Moses. And what do we learn in Exodus chapter 32, verse 4? So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And now Jeroboam in 1 Kings chapter 12 Verse 28 says something very similar. So the king took counsel, made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And look at verse 31. He not only recreates the same idolatrous action of Aaron, he puts temples on the high places. That's prohibited. He appoints priests from among all the people, not of the Levites. It doesn't matter what God reveals in his word. I tell you, this hits home. um, Because what are we watching in our day? Have you noticed this? This is... What we're seeing in our own day-to-day lives is we're seeing people that profess the name of Christ who rather than follow an allegiance to God's word, seek to remain relevant to the culture. Culture says, hey, it's not right that only men are preachers. Somebody says, wait a minute, the quality of an elder is the husband of own wife. Well, that's not fair. Okay, well, how can we appease the culture? Men or women can be preachers. Well, then what do we do? It's not right that God has declared in his word what human sexuality ought to look like. Well, then what can we do in order to keep happy people and bring them to church? Let's create another way. Let's create a method that says that sexuality is not that important to God. And what we've understood historically for 2,000 years must not be true, but God approves of any type of sexual deviancy, and he approves of it. What happens now? We are creating God in our own image, but it's no longer God. We are literally looking in a way at the world, not through the lens of what God has revealed, but through what might work according to our own ideas. May it never be. You see, what we're seeing happen in progressive Christianity is a spirituality of arrogant, proud people who want to keep their own form of spirituality. 
And in the process, they recreate God in their own image. They come up with their own priest. They come up with their own religious days. They come up with their own altars. They come up with their own temples. But in the meantime, they feel better about their lives because they're busy and engaged in the work of religion. There it is. I mean, we see this, and it ought to be, rather than an opportunity to boast and pull ourselves up and seek to brag or be cruel and mean-spirited, it ought to humble us because we ought to see, are we worshiping God the way he has revealed? Are we worshiping him according to spirit and truth? Or are we recreating the very God that we say is the God of the Bible and make him into a form of what feels more comfortable for our human depraved flesh? That's what they're doing here in 1 Kings chapter 12. He creates a festival on the eighth month, which is a month after the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a month after the Day of Atonement. He creates all of the bells and the whistles that if you didn't know what God had revealed, it looks close to the surface as something that's legit, but there's something that's wrong here. It's completely against the ways that God has revealed himself. We need to learn from this. There's pride over and over and over. And so what we see is not only a call to humility, but we see a call to obedience. And what happens, we move from chapter 12 and the sad realities, we move into chapter 13, and at the beginning of chapter 13, something dramatic takes place. How is God going to respond to a man who's recreating God in his own image? He's not happy, he's not pleased with it. And what takes place is there's a man of God that comes out of Judah by the word of the Lord, and he goes to Bethel. Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. He goes to Bethel. What's significant about Bethel? That is where he has constructed one of these golden calves. And now the man of God shows up. And immediately the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord. I tell you, you go back to this, this, this imagery. It's not just in sexual ways. What if we pursue the God of materialism and we want to justify in our lives? We will justify and we will make ways of, of, of changing God to fit our idolatry. What if we pursue, and, and you think about any kinds of immorality, we could talk about that which is homosexuality. We could talk about heterosexuality. We could talk about the man or the woman who justify pornography or who justify infidelity. And they seek to do what? They seek to be comfortable in their pursuits by changing God in a way that works for them. We, we, we basically can take this wherever it may lead. But the good news is this this morning. This is who we all are. The only way we can change the only way we can be different is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I pray you'd see that. This is who we are. We're no different than Jeroboam. It could be that you look at these stories in the Old Testament, and rather than identify with the worst of the worst, you seek to identify with the best of the best 
that you don't understand that the root problem of Jeroboam, the root problem of Solomon, at the root problem of Rehoboam, at the root problem even of the man of God in chapter 13 is a problem that we all identify with. We need the promise of a king that never fails. We need a king that is uncompromised in perfect obedience because in chapter 13, we got an example. We have an example of a man of God who comes to Bethel. He calls out judgment against Jeroboam for all of this nonsense. And in the process, he is an illustration at the beginning of chapter 13 of a man of God who's uncompromised, a man of God who's bold, a man of God who's faithful. But by the time the end of the chapter rolls around, he's a man that is judged and he's a man that's killed. Why? Because even this man of God, who starts out so wonderfully, is a man that fails. He's a man that's frail. He's a man that shows disobedience. He starts out the chapter, he calls out this prophecy. He says he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord in verse 2 and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, behold, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priest of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. This is amazing. This is similar to the prophecy of Cyrus and Isaiah. This is unbelievable. The liberals look at this and they say, ah, this is proof that the Bible is not inspired because there's no way that the Bible could be supernatural, <laughs> But what's amazing here is because God gave the word and not humans, they didn't come up with it, God here gives a remarkable promise that there would be a man named Josiah that would ultimately fulfill this prophecy many, many, many years later. And what happens is, is that he gave a sign the same day in verse 3 of chapter 13. This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, seize him. In his hand. Now imagine this. Here's a man that is at the altar. He's a very religious man. But he's completely against the things and the ways of God. I was reading a uh, something that grabbed me. It's an old saint, J.C. Philpot. I got to pull these uh, reading glasses out. Things are changing in my life. Listen to what Philpot says. But after a time, as the Lord leads the soul into a deeper knowledge of itself, as His word of truth is felt with more power in our hearts. And he brings the soul into a more experimental, experimental knowledge of his kingdom of grace. We find no more communion with the great bulk of the religious world than with the profane world. Wait a minute. We find no more communion, no more fellowship with the great bulk of the religious world than with the profane world. We want the power while they are satisfied with the form. We want realities while they are contented with shadows. We want life and a feeling 
experience of the love and goodness of God in the soul, they are satisfied with mere doctrines as they stand in the mere letter of truth. You know what he's talking about here? He's talking about the same reality going on in Jeroboam's life. It's a dangerous, dangerous scenario when people have embraced a form of religion and they're active in the things of God, but they know nothing of God. They're active in profession, but they lack possession. When we start this period of analyzing the life of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, what we see this morning, and we're going to simply stop here, is a call to humility. A call to humility. A call to humility. And humility is going to be primarily expressed and manifested by our response and a dependence and a yieldedness to God's word. This morning, where's your heart? Where's your heart? Is the word of God shaping it? Are you humble before the word of the Lord? Or this morning, are you arrogant? And your arrogance is displayed in your life in multiple areas that you may never have thought to put your finger on. I want to read you a passage, and I'll close with it. It's a passage that speaks of humility as it responds to the truth of God. James 1, 21, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. This morning, look to Jesus, friend. We can relate to Jeroboam. In our flesh, we are arrogant, we are proud, and it's demonstrated by our response to God. Our only hope of having a change of heart is through the promises of the new covenant of the one that would come that could change our heart and give us life, change our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh, to change the dispositions of our desires and change the way we look towards God. Our only hope is Christ. And we learn when we study these kings and we study Rehoboam and we study Jeroboam, and while I talk about the need for humility and the warning against pride, we could repeat this sermon all the way through. I could make it the head title of almost every one of the kings of Israel. But this morning, as we close, I want you to do me something, and I'm going to pray with you. I want us to go to the Lord and say, God, what does my life, what does my response to your word, what does my lack of time in your word, what does my heart, what does my life reveal about whether I'm proud or whether I'm humble before you? Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And Lord, I pray today that that we would have a serious tone 
that, that we would have a, uh, a humility even in desiring to ask you the hard question of God, reveal my heart. Lord, I pray you'd guard us against the subtle forms of pride that we may never even acknowledge as pride. Pray, Lord, we learn from the tragic life of King Jeroboam. I pray, Lord, that we would see your word for what it is. I pray, Lord, that we would seek your kingdom over our own. And I pray, Lord, that we would worship you as you have expressed and revealed in your word. I pray, oh God, we would not follow the tragic example of Jeroboam, who recreated you into a God of his own making. And Lord, missed you entirely. I pray, oh, Father, we would see the goodness of Jesus and the grace of Jesus, and we would look to him. Today, Lord, we would ask and plead for a heart of humility and a heart of wisdom, and we would follow after you according to your truth. And we thank you, oh, God. That's only possible through the grace that you've given us through your Son, by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. I pray that would be the dependence, that would be the heart of every individual in this room. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.